I'm Josie Mitchell, and this is the Granta Magazine podcast, where we speak to authors about their novels, memoirs, story collections, and poetry. Lynn Tillman is the author of many books, including the 2006 novel American Genius, A Comedy, and the 2014 essay collection What Would Lynn Tillman Do? It's hard to capture the breadth of Lynn's work, from her arts criticism and bi-monthly column for Freeze, to her time as a fiction editor for Fence. She's fertilized the various artistic communities she has participated within, including as a prolific interviewer and critic. This October, Peninsula Press will reissue two early works by Lynn in the UK. Weird Fucks, a slim novella that first appeared in a punk scene in 1980, and Haunted Houses, her debut novel, published in 1987. It's great to meet you in the flesh, Lynn. Oh, and it is. Yes. It's really lovely. We've, we've emailed, haven't we? And we've talked on the phone, but we've never met in person. So. That's right. That When we were doing the essay for Caitlin Maxwell. Exactly. For Granta. Yeah. So it's really lovely to sort of meet in person. Thank you so much. My um, pleasure. It's a treat to have you in the UK. Thank you. Did You, you came to Edinburgh first? Did you I fly flew in? into Edinburgh to do the Edinburgh Book Festival, which I'd never been asked to do. Years ago, I did the Edinburgh Film Festival because I had co-directed and written a feature film called Committed, which was based on, but very fictionalized, the life of Oh, God, what was her name again? <laughs> I just had it and completely forgotten. Uh, it'll come back to me. Based on, how could I... Um, Frances Farmer, sorry. Frances Farmer. Farmer. No, don't worry. And she was a movie star of the 30s and 40s, and uh, it's called Committed because her mother committed her to a mental institution for five years. I think of it as kind of the last feminist film making in a, of a specific type came out in 1984. And it was shot by Heinz Emicholz, who's a very well-known German filmmaker himself and artist. He had a very particular uh, look in, the, in how he shot things, often using angles. So it looks beautiful. It's in black and white and very black and white. There was a lot of silver in, in the film then. And it's 75 minutes and it opened at the Berlin Film Festival. And I thought I was going to be able to continue to make films, even though writing was my first love. That's, that's really all I wanted to do, but I also wanted to do everything. Mm. A sort of omnivore, omnivorous appetite to try different things. I, I was curious about so many things, and of course I'd grown up watching television and movies, and who doesn't want to make movies? I mean, at some point, or, well, now you can just put something up on, you know, YouTube or TikTok and satisfy something, I guess. Yeah, everyone has an iPhone camera. That's right. Very, very easy. Uh, and the iPhone, the more and more they develop the camera, is pretty damn terrific. It's changing the whole concept of what, the, what screens we look on. I still don't want to watch a movie on my iPhone. 
I just don't want to watch a movie on my iPhone. I can watch it on a 40-inch screen, 42-inch screen, but so reduced. I mean, you're basically just watching information. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes I think I'll, I'll watch, I spend way too long on TikTok, for example, watching these 10-second videos, and I'll reassure myself that oh, I only did one feature film's worth of TikToks. <laughs> and you think, really, it doesn't add up in the same way, though, does it? What are your favorite kinds? Of TikToks? Yeah. It's a very personal question. Oh. I sometimes think that because the algorithm learns your your preferences so quickly that talking about the TikToks you watch is a bit like talking about your dreams. You're revealing so much to a person about your adventure. I suppose that's true. I, unfortunately, love animal videos. And I, once I start watching one, I, I get totally lost. And it's really terrible, actually. But to go back to this film that you went to the... So that was for the film festival in Edinburgh. Do you know when that was? Uh, 1984, I believe it was, or 85. Right. Uh, I'm not sure. So actually that would be about the time or around the time that you would have been working on the novel Haunted Haunted Houses. Houses, yeah. Right? I worked on it for quite a number of years. I did not go to writing school. I never took a writing course. In fact, I was an English literature major in college, an American history minor, but I never took a writing course. And so I had to figure out how to write a novel in my own way. And I learned how to write from reading. Uh, And I read and read and read and read. And Um, I knew what most novels were like, good novels for the most part, some bad novels too. And I had to figure out what my novel would be. And Haunted Houses is non-traditional, and it wasn't that I was determined to write an avant-garde book, quite I wasn't thinking that way. What I was thinking is, what could I write? What was I interested in? So in Haunted Houses, there are three characters, and Jane, Emily, and Grace. And it begins with them as young girls. It kind of gives a a case history. I was thinking of Freud at that time. Uh, But not in some kind of way that analyzes the characters, but there's enough given about the father and the mother and the sister or the best friend for each girl has an element, one of those elements, that the reader can begin to make assumptions or begin to imagine the character. The the girls are never described physically. When I got to the end of section one, the book is in five sections, I knew that they were supposed to meet. I mean, that's what happened in every novel I ever read. The characters, I mean, except for, let's say, Camus, (laughs) where the stranger, where after he kills... He doesn't meet anybody else. There's no. Oh, that's far. true. Of course, that's true. Yeah. But um, 
so I have these three characters, and I get to the end of section one, where each is given a, a narrative, a story to begin. And I can't think of a reason to have them meet. It just seems so phony to me. Uh, I think of them as three discrete universes or characters who exist in the same novel, which is a container. And they have different traits that uh, from each other, but also they might go through the same things which girls go through, getting the period or uh, having a bad relationship with the mother or a good one with the best friend or a bad one with the best friend. And uh, so there were certain things that were similar. Paul Bowles said to me, uh, he read the novel and uh, he was one of the first people I sent it to. I'd had a correspondence with him, that's that's why. And he said, he wrote me a postcard back from Tangier, and he said, I like the novel very much, but I get the characters confused, the way you do in a Russian novel. <laughs> that's reminding me, I think, of something I read in, perhaps in an essay on Paul Bowles, where, am I right in thinking that Kathy Ackerblurb, the book, haunted houses yes. and put on it Lynn Tillman, daughter of Jane Bowles. That's right. And that then people wrote or got in touch with you and thought that you were in fact the daughter of Jane Bowles. That's right. I When Kathy wrote that, it didn't occur to me that people didn't know that Jane Bowles never had had any children. But of course, I, I have learned since then that you have to be very clear about that <laughs> around things because you know things others don't and others know many more things that you don't. But I once got a call from somebody in Japan who thought I was Jane Bowles' daughter. And Paul Bowles, after we actually met in the flesh, I went to Tangier to see him. Uh, we'd been corresponding for years he said to somebody, she's not at all like Jane. <laughs> to go back to the uh, mention of Freud, actually, it's an interesting one because I think one of the, one of the, the, the epigraph to the, the book is this line taken from Tribute to Freud by H.D., yes. a sort of poet who was, it's an amazing book, actually. I, I read it uh, a couple of years ago and it's such a great sort of like reference you know, this poet, right, sort of has had lesbian relationships, is in Vienna at a time, I think it's like the 19, early 1930s, mid-30s. Mid oh, yeah, before Hitler. Freud's in Vienna, Hitler is sort of growing in power. Um, what about that line? Remind me of the line, I don't want to mess it up. We are all haunted houses. Yeah, what about that line meant something to you that you wanted to use that in the book? So I was writing these three characters who have a past, each, even though they're quite young. By the end of the book, maybe each is 22. Or so so they're, they're young. But already their psyches, their minds are filled with uh, what has happened to them before. And 
in that sense, we are always haunted by our past and what psychoanalysis is for me, and I've been in it the majority of my either psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic psychotherapy. It's not about cure, <laughs> but it's about understanding what those, if we want to call them ghosts, to continue the metaphor of haunted houses, what those prevalent feelings and reactions are. One of the things that one finds out is about how, how reactive you can be and how that reactiveness uh, operates against lucidity, operates against seeing something differently. Um, because if you bring, it's like bringing along a screen on which are imprinted figures and everything is placed under that screen. And all of those figures in the screen, if you think of them as transferences to others, uh, they impregnate uh, the present with the past. And you're, you're reenacting, let's say, and bringing into a situation some oddities that don't need to, to be there. And that sense of understanding is so important, being able to see why you react as you do, so that, let's say, you won't the mm. next time, or at least you'll think about it. I mean, I'm living in a country, by the way, that's it's, it's reactive as a beehive. All it is is reactive now. It's pretty haunted as well. Yes. Yeah. Very haunted. Yeah. The, the ghosts of the um, founding fathers are right now vomiting somewhere. <laughs> it's a good metaphor in a way. It makes you think of all the colonial ghosts that are knocking about in the UK, stopping it for the country or the government from making any rational decisions. I I don't understand Brexit. I've, I mean, I, I I understand it as irrational. I understand it as wanting to turn back the clock and all those kinds of things. But it seems so crazy to me. I think it, yeah, I think it is crazy. It continues to be crazy. And it's one of these frustrating things that has such a slow process through. So it's sort of, it's going to be decades long in its sort of as we work through that decision. It's really strange. Years ago, when I was in London for another book, I think it was for motion sickness, I was interviewed on BBC Radio. This guy said to me, Well, as an American, what do you think about this EU, England, the UK joining the EU? And I said, well, if you take the American model, you're going to have the question of states' rights and federalism. And there's going to be problems among the different nations who might want different things. The American experiment 
has been an argument between those separations for ages. He didn't include that <laughs> in the final program. I mean, the haunted house is such a is such a valuable metaphor, isn't it? As um, sort of thinking about how relevant it is when I was reading it, reading the book. You've said before that there was a sort of central question to the books that you write and that sort of guides the writing of the book. Was the question with this one to do with the idea of hauntedness or was it a separate question? It, that was one thing. Uh, what was most urgent to me was to write girls' lives without any sentimentality, to write them as harsh as they can be, to write them with Simone de Beauvoir's notion, brilliant idea, that women aren't born, they're made, with this notion that this is a construction. So the idea that gender is a construction has always been with me. It's, uh, I... I believe it deeply, and that's why the movements that are upsetting gender, I think, are very important. And uh, while things are unsettled in so many ways, and it's not easy for anyone who's conscious of what's going on, it's necessary because those roles um, are limiting and yeah. unnecessary. Why should the body be tied to a particular function? And, um, but in, in my country, that's, what's, that's what the ultra-right, or not even the ultra-right, the right, wants to do again. Not only uh, stop a woman from being able to control her pregnancies, but there isn't even talk about um, forbidding contraception. I mean, I, I really don't understand. Um, I, I mean, I, I understand in some ways. Intellectually, I understand what's going on. What is, what is going on intellectually? I think control of women's bodies. I think the demographic is shifting. I think white men uh, are frightened of losing everything, maybe white people. I am a white person. I hope I'm not a white supremacist. Uh, there is no way, if you grow up in America, that you have not been tainted by issues around race. It's, I think, similar to class in the UK. And it's not as if class doesn't operate in America too, but what's most obvious is um, race relations. But I think across the world, the control of women is a central, central issue and a very disturbing one. In America, we're just going backward to some Edenic idea that women should be wearing 
loincloth or something and running around having babies and cooking stew. <laughs> Just horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in this idea of writing without sentimentality, as, as if, that that would somehow offer a way out of that limitation. The way in which women have generally been represented has to... Not all writers, I mean, George Eliot doesn't do this, for one, quite the opposite in many ways. But there's a general attitude toward women. What women write is domestic. It um, about relationships. Uh, in my in in a novel of mine called No Lease on Life, which was a novel set within 24 hours in New York City. Uh, the female character is about a 30-year-old, 35-year-old, and it's her day. You know, I'm sort of riffing on Ulysses. Um, she even goes to the post office. <laughs> but she has a partner, a boyfriend, and He's mostly sleeping during the day, and they have sex once some sometime during that twenty four hour period and A few reviewers commented now the book came out in nineteen ninety eight A few reviewers commented on how the man is you know, they're not, they don't engage or they don't, the book is not about her having a relationship with this man. Uh, and it's very disturbing yeah. to, to people or at least to these reviewers. It's not about their relationship. It's about a day in her life, a day and night in her life and dealing with what she calls the morons on the street it's a kind of angry, funny, it's filled with actual New York City jokes and so on. But those are the kinds of responses mm. you get when you veer away from traditional uh, ideas that if you have a relationship in a book, it's a man, a woman, traditionally, they're going to have dialogue. They're going to fight. They're going to have sex. They're going to have dinner together, etc. I didn't do that. Which makes me wonder, because I think Weird Fucks, which is a novella that is coming out with Peninsula Press. Mm. I think it's just come out. It's out this year. It's been out a year, I think. It's been out a year. Yeah. It was out in 2021. Um part of Peninsula Press sort of returning to your earlier work and mm. publishing it, which I think is a wonderful thing that that's happening in the UK. Um, that was, that came out as a novella for the first time in 1990. Is that right? In, no. It was uh, a zine much earlier and then it... Oh, oh, well. Yeah, tell me about this. Tell me about how that came about yes, and when it was published. rather and, convoluted. So in 1980, a magazine called Bikini Girl, which was part of the punk moment, this was the punk and post-punk moment, uh, which was a, always a pink magazine published out of Club 57, 
on St. Mark's Place, so a punk club. Uh, the editor, Lisa Baumgartner, uh, asked if I had any writing. And since no publisher of any, you know, usual publisher wanted Weird Fox, um, I gave it to her. Now, I made a lot of assumptions in those days. You'd written it already? In your I'd written it. I'd finished it. And I wanted a publisher. And a friend of mine, Martha Wilson, who uh, is an artist, she made up a, an agency called The Secret Agency <laughs> and got letterhead and sent weird fucks out to, you know, some normal, quote-unquote normal publishers. Of course, it was always rejected, the length for one thing, but also the title and so on. It's quite short. Yeah. And it's quite short, yeah. It was my first longish work. Yeah. And so when Lisa Baumgartner said she'd like to publish it in Bikini Girl, I assumed it would be a chapbook, a little book that would be, well, turned out to be uh, in six-point type, spread across a very broad page. So my book turned into something like six pages. And there was a lot of other stuff in the magazine. I was deeply deeply upset, sort of humiliated because I invited some friends for dinner <laughs> to celebrate my new book, my first book. I, I, well, not my first, actually. I'd, um, yes, it would have been my first book, yes. Uh, yes, that was, um, you know, in Spinal Tap, when Stonehenge comes down on the stage and it's tiny. <laughs> It, that was that was the effect of having six pages in Bikini Girl magazine, and it's had these afterlives. Oh yes, that have sort of and now it's you know a full what a hundred and ten pages its own book, UK reissue. <laughs> it's only became a real thing in a way, uh, the actual what it should be thing in two thousand fifteen in the states an independent press called New Herring decided they would do it. And Amy Silman, who shows here, is a great painter, she did the illustrations and the cover, beautiful abstract cover. And I'm not sure how it got to Peninsula. I know how... Men and Apparitions got to Peninsula Press, and that's one of those lucky things that Will Reese, one of the editors, was in Chicago in 2018. That's just when Men and Apparitions came out, and he saw it in the Seminary Co-op bookstore in Chicago, picked it up, loved it, and boom, Peninsular is bringing my books back to life here. Yeah. He was telling me about that trip to Chicago, and I was sort of saying such a, you know, and him going then back through all of your books and just finding revelation after revelation because there's such, 
such a prolific writer and you've written with such breadth as well, right? So there's just so much to discover. Thank you. The um, I'm, I'm sort of returning to this sort of image you've set up as this sort of counter that you're writing against, right? Which is this um, cliched image of womanhood or girlhood, female sexuality, the performance of womanhood. Weird fucks is just, when you present it in that way, it's so clearly the opposite of that in so many ways. What is it, 13 chapters? And these sort of faceless, or not faceless, because they get a couple of... um, they get a brief introduction, you know, they're sort of blonde and weak or this or that, but there's these men that just pass through and this character who's, this protagonist is just, yeah, how would you describe it? Moving through her life and through quite a number of men. Yeah, having encounters. I was more interested in the atmosphere around the sexual event Um the fucking wasn't the important thing. It was what happened before and after. And that, the ethos, the atmosphere, um, it was a very different time, just as trans, uh, the trans movement is shaking things up. Uh, the birth control pill was revolutionary. I absolutely believe revolutionary, and I think that not enough credence is given to the fact that up until that period, women could, for millennia, could not control pregnancies accurately. I mean, how huge can that be? Half of the population, or slightly more, suddenly has the capacity not to become pregnant, not to be ruled by having one birth after another unless you're celibate. I mean, taking that on is... It's just a huge part of of human history that I think gets... uh, trivialized, because I think events in women's lives often get trivialized. But it's it created a revolution. Now, I know there are a lot of books, and there have been for a while, coming out attacking the sexual revolution, that this was terrible for women, this was this and that. You don't get a revolution that's neat, you know, there's just not going to be all tied up and everybody knows what to do. You know, if, for instance, we were told we will no longer eat with silverware, but with our hands, you know, that would be very, very difficult for a lot of people to to manage. And that's not as big as the birth control entering women's lives and human life. So, sure, it was messy. Sure, women got fucked in, <laughs> in both ways. And uh, yeah. there was a lot of unhappiness. But there was a lot of unhappiness before <laughs> the sexual revolution. Um, 
And even to say the sexual revolution sounds so neat and tidy. Um, this book is far more mysterious, I think. And and yeah, yeah. But I, it's interesting you saying that because actually it is a book that it's not really... At times it feels like the protagonist is reveling in her freedom. At the same time, she's also able to talk quite frankly about the unhappiness that sometimes takes place in her life. Or sort of, There's that sort of ambivalence, perhaps. Yes, I, and I think that's true to experiences in general. Uh, I don't know what women wanted to, to be funny about Freud, um, but ecstasy is uh, in limited supply, I think. Um, and a relationship is a relationship. And, you know, now with hookups, but now again, fewer because of COVID and, and so on, that relationship of intimacy, even if you know it's not long-term, still has an effect. It's in the body and the brain and the mind and the body. These are all things that are... Mm. obviously fused together. And it's so hard to know one's motives. You might think you're going out just to have sex, but it might end up that you actually want someone to love you. And I think wanting someone to love you, whatever love is, I mean, there, there are so many ways, Josie, that we can say something and then we have to pull it apart, pull it apart. Uh, all of these also being culturally conditioned and we as humans being conditioned in, in different ways. I think there's a certain amount of deconditioning <laughs> going on. and it's, What's going on in what way? Well, I think because of gender roles, for one thing. I think because of... Uh, a renegotiation about sexual behavior, uh, and there tend there tend to be um, too many dogmas and too many dogmatic people who want it to be one way or the other way, and I just think. Uh, the, this this experience, all experiences have complications. They're not simple. I mean, maybe eating breakfast is simple, although you could choke on your yeah, breakfast. <laughs> the microbiome, so many <laughs> things to think about. Yeah, I think, I, um, I, I, I think I agree with you. And it makes me wonder, because I think we are, there is, we are in this period of transition, this period of questioning. It's funny how these questions that you're chewing on in the 80s are uh, becoming part of, I think, a, serious, a, a lot of questioning and, as you call it, deconditioning right now. I'm wondering what it's like to reread books like Haunted Houses and Weird Fucks or to return to them. Have you reread re them? I've uh, looked at different passages. Yeah. And uh, they hold up. I, um, I think so. I mean, that may sound very vain, 
What does hold up mean? They they continue to be what I think of as good writing, mm. interesting. Um, I think they're literature, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is um, of course a a um, a rebuked term. You know, what do we mean by literature? But when writing, I'm not writing. Um, I'm, I'm very aware that I, I'm not writing as, as a trend. You know, um, for instance, I'm not going to include, I'm going to say phone, not iPhone. Because one day, I mean, because now we just think of the phone, right? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing... Um, in the present, but I, I want the writing to hold up, to, to stand as, as writing. I was very much influenced by poets when I was a teenager. Really? And reading poetry and going to poetry readings and uh, choosing the right word, uh, getting that syntax, syntax straight for me is as important, if not more, than telling a story people say to me it's as if it's written now i really want to ask you about this actually okay. because i think it's it's something i'm very I'm fascinated with your writing i think that's true i was just i think um well because i think you've written i think in an essay on andy warhol you you, you were writing about this idea of being ahead of your time and what that means and you slightly put pressure on the idea of being ahead of one's time which is funny because I think that about you but I also know that you critique that idea in quite a sophisticated way so in a way maybe the most the simplest thing for me to do is say is that a thing that annoys you is that a thing that you feel is inaccurate if someone says Lynn I think these books were ahead of their time and well I know it's I know it's a compliment yeah um two things are influenced me a lot in that was Warhol said that um, he was part of his time, like rockets in television. And Gertrude Stein made the point that... He's another try, great reference for this, actually. Yeah. yeah, made the point, I'm trying to think of the most succinct way to put it, that she didn't think even though we consider her an avant-gardist, that her work work was ahead of its time. She felt it was part of its time, but that some people didn't pay attention to it and that um, they had other things to do. She didn't, uh, in uh, uh, the a pejorative sense of avant-garde, she didn't put down those who didn't get it. She said they're not interested. This was in her essay, Composition, um, compo uh, Composition as, Jesus, my... Is it Exposition? Yes, yeah. Composition, composition as exposition. exposition. Yeah. It's a brilliant essay. I think it's one of the best essays on art. Um, that and Kafka's uh, The Mouse People. Brilliant mm -hmm. essay on art. 
and other things too. Uh, uh, those are my two favorite essays on art. Okay, I'm going to go read them. Oh, just just amazing. So she makes this case that not everyone is interested in what a writer like Lynn Tillman is doing. And that's absolutely true. In fact, most people aren't. And in addition to that, I consider myself part, part of um, unpopular culture. <laughs> uh, in addition, how books get to people is peculiar. And there has never been a lot of money put behind my books to big big ads. I've never gotten um, huge, brilliant reviews that, um, no, no. And so people wouldn't know about my work. And, and even if people did, uh, I, I, I wasn't making traditional moves. I was doing what interested me. Uh, that's, I, I never thought that I should do something other than what interested me. And the, the issue is always to find something that excites you uh, so that you spend 10 years on a novel or eight years on a novel or three years on a novel. That's, that's a big part of your life. Has it been disconcerting then, this sort of growing popularity, <laughs> <laughs> the growing popularity of the of the work that you do, and the and the widening of the readership and the people that are sort of reaching out to you, as I imagine it's happening more and more. Well, it's a beautiful surprise, certainly unexpected, and um, it didn't come too late. <laughs> One thing actually that reminds me that we should do is actually capture your voice reading your work. Oh. I'd really love to, yeah, hear a reading from Haunted Houses. I thought I would just read the first couple of pages. Her father liked to scare her. He knew she adored him. He'd creep into her room early in the morning or late at night and jump on her and she'd cry. He'd console her with kisses and hugs. Years later, Jane would say, it's a hard habit to break, loving madmen. Jane's parents, particularly her father, had wanted a son having two girls already and had waited nearly seven years before making the unsuccessful attempt to have him. Jane's mother would need an operation after Jane's birth, which would put an end once and for all to her childbearing days. But Jane was innocent of this fact as well as their desire for a son. Otherwise, she was not a difficult birth. At two, she had tried to claim her father as her own, covering his face with her little body and shouting, he's my daddy, my daddy, to her much older sisters, who could dismiss that kind of ba behavior as babyish. But Jane was driven. She became daddy's girl to the chagrin of her mother, who had her hands full anyway. The third child is always e the easiest, she heard her mother say to a woman who was visiting. It's like she's raising herself. Jane's first boyfriend, when she was three, 
was a morose, skinny kid who lived on the floor below. His whole family, skinny and very pale. After a pretend marriage that lasted a year, they were separated because her family moved away to the suburbs, and she asked one of her sisters if this meant they were divorced. Divorced. Yes, she answered, and Jane promptly found a second boyfriend, Jimmy, who lived on the next block. He, too, was a peculiar boy, three years older than Jane, and elusive. She could never tell if he liked her or not. Jane couldn't figure out who her parents liked either, though her father said he liked everybody. In any case, he was nice to everybody, and they didn't see him when he was sulking in the basement because he couldn't hook up the speaker to the radio. He put a telephone down there ostensibly to call his mother, who didn't get along with Jane's mother, and he called her every day. When she played with Jimmy, Jane insisted upon wearing dresses. He's too wild, her mother told her. But his nostrils flare when he speaks, she responded, which meant to Jane that Jimmy was sensitive like a rabbit. She could even tell him about the children's book she loved and hated because it confused her. There was a little girl who had a blanket. The blanket got a hole in it. She wanted to get rid of the hole, so she decided to cut it out. She cut it out, and the hole got bigger. She cut that out, too, and the hole got bigger. Eventually, the hole disappeared, but so did the blanket. The little girl cried, and Jane was genuinely puzzled. You've been listening to the Granta Magazine podcast. Please do subscribe if you'd like to hear more of these episodes and give us a rating if you enjoyed this one. And if you're keen to find more great writing, check out granta.com. <laughs>